Todo el mundo. But that was really. 
And so it's delightful to try to recapture that feeling of just a dumpy amphitheater in a dumpy Texas theme park. And so the story is about a band that's just kind of hitting big and then infighting kind of starts to break them up. So when there's a zombie attack of all these kids attacking the amphitheater, um, the band has to kind of put their differences aside and fight together to save the day and um, turn the zombies back into teenagers with the power of rock and roll. Yeah. <laughs> and there's also a sort of a Lovecraftian twist, which I loved and I did not see coming the first time I read through your story. So I'm wondering kind of what inspired you to, to do that? Did it just come along as you were writing the story or did you plan it out in advance? Oh, I, there, what's really funny is one of the main roller coasters in Houston, this is very specific, but was they had to shut it down because it was on a sinkhole and you can't build a roller coaster on a sinkhole. It starts uh, yeah, that's not the a good idea. Kill everybody. And I remembered that when I was doing this, I was like, oh, what if something was in that sinkhole that was going to make things worse? And then zombie stories kind of have a normal ending. Either the zombies win, you're in a zombie apocalypse, you either learn to survive or you figure out a way to defeat it. And I was like, what if that's not ultimately the problem? So at the end, after you think, oh, they've dressed up in stuffed animal suits and destroyed all of this and figured it all out. What if something gets much worse and there's a giant Lovecraftian monster who is causing it? And I was like, oh, that'll be, that will hopefully stick with the ultimately Scooby-Doo ridiculous tone of the story. So. Right, well, I love it. I mean, I could really see it as an animated short, you know, I think it, you could really do something with that story, you know, in a cinematic way. The Go-Go's and, I mean, the Go-Go's never guessed it on Scooby-Doo. Total <laughs> missed right. opportunity for yeah. them and Shaggy to have fought Lovecraftian monsters. So. <laughs> um, I want to kind of go back to your life as a concert goer in Texas, because I know you saw the Butthole Surfers, who's, they're one of my oh, yeah. favorite groups, and it was kind of a wild show. Can you tell me about that? That was what's amazing about the rise of YouTube because you have these vague memories of just, just crazy bacchanalia and just insane things that happen. And there was like a New Year's Eve show that the surfers did at the Vatican in um, Houston. And I remember a few weeks after the show, I was like, wow, that was nuts. The power went out, everything got set on fire. Wow, that was, it couldn't have possibly been that bad. But what I always remembered is there was a show I went to at that club a couple of months later where there's this giant barrier now in front of the uh, stage yeah. and I asked the security guard what's with the barrier and they're like surfer's show and I was like oh I guess maybe it was bad but it kind of faded from memory and then I found it on YouTube a few months ago and there they are setting everything on fire putting like you know lighter fluid on the symbols and setting it and just setting it ablaze because the power's out and so they just keep hitting it and flames just rise. And in the age of, you know, the disaster that Great White had at their show, like, there have been so many dangerous shows and very violent shows that have happened. And in retrospect, they never should have done that in a million years. But, you know, it was the, it's the surfers. It was Houston. <laughs> yeah. Desolate club in the middle of it's long gone. It's just long gone. 
And wow. it's like, wow, I, uh, I'm glad I survived that show. But yeah, exactly. Well, I'm glad you survived to write uh, <laughs> one of my favorite books. Uh, Emily Eternal is one of my favorite books of yours. I kind of think of it as ethereal sci-fi, you know, so uh, naturally, though, I can't wait to see what you've got coming up. Do you have any other writing projects in the works? Um, yeah, I, I've got, I think, like three more short stories coming out in anthologies in the next few months. One's in a, there's this group, Sentinel Creatives in South Africa. I have a Lovecraftian story with them about spiritualist photographers in the 1890s uncovering an ancient monster that's been trapped under New York with a binding spell that was here to eat the sun and stop humanity from ever rising. Um, I've got a ghost story or a, a, a forest story that takes place in East Germany that's coming out in this magazine called Cellar Door about there's a there's a place in northern former east germany called the ghost forest the gespenser folks and it's the darkest place on earth because the beech trees there form this canopy and you can't see a thing even in broad daylight and it's where a lot of the grimm's fairy tales originated and i went there once i cycled through it and i was like wow i should really do a story here and i have another story that i don't oh i i have this thing from hellbound books it's a new spin on the island of Dr. Moreau, which takes place in Summerlin, Nevada. Uh, uh -huh. with <laughs> That's happened all to the I empty live. vacation houses. <laughs> so it's, I'm sure, I hope you enjoy it. And then I have a book. I have a Wraith coming out sometime next year. And it's just oh, one of those French Gothic stories of an American girl who finds out about a family curse inheritance and has to go to France. And to be frank, it really was, oh, the pandemic sucks. I can't travel. I'm going to spend time writing about rural France. I, I, was, I lived there for a little bit mm -hmm. and write about haunted abbeys and the woods and all the places I'd rather be than stuck in COVID lockdown in oh, Los wow. Angeles. Yeah, so I'm sure that, that informed your writing in a different way than it ordinarily would. Oh, yeah. It's like... If, if, exploring maps like the wonderful google earth maps of oh yeah i was here in 2008 and here's how this highway changed and just like working on something that i haven't been i, I was there in uh, 2008 and it's one of those old haunted abbeys from like 1100 surrounded by the woods of the val d'oise and you'd see things and you'd hear you'd go along and then you'd see like a baron with a hunting party, killing yeah. wild boar. And they'd be like, oh, an American, how's it going? And I'm like, wow, you're just pulling dead boar out of a Land Rover. This is a weird place. So <laughs> you know, fun to write about. Really atmospheric. Well, I'm sure I'll love to read that one. Um, so we're gonna start our show soon. And I just had to have you on as my co-host for this episode of Rock and Roll Nightmares because Yay. today we are interviewing Pleasant Gaiman, Go-Go's insider. And as we already talked about, uh, your story is titled Dead Over Heels, which is a twist on the Go-Go's Head Over Heels. So let's get to the show. Our guest today is a punk, a princess, a prancer, and a prognosticator. Welcome, Pleasant Gaiman. Hey there, how are you? Let me just 
you know, kind of dive right in with the questions. Um, you know, we both came of age in LA and, you know, the eighties. And I'm kind of surprised that we never met because we were both in the Hollywood music scene, but I was more rock and you were more into cutting edge punk, but I say better late than never. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, you know, when I interviewed you for my documentary, The Venture Stars on Guitars, that's when I first met you. And, um, you explained how instrumental surf bands like The Ventures and Dick Dale were in influencing punk. And it seems rather like a guy-centric sort of music. No, it's the, everyone has that misconception, kind of. That was later punk. The early punk scene in L.A. was full of women doing all sorts of things, being in bands, forming bands. Like I had my fanzine. Um it wasn't until the early 80s that it got really sort of testosterone driven. Um, and was that with the the kind of the skinheads? When did they come in? They they, really the in the skinheads and also what we used to call the jocks in early punk rock. Those were the people that used to like throw garbage at us out of car windows and just say faggot, David Bowie, weirdo, that kind of stuff. So it uh -huh. took me a few years to catch on. Um, that the music that was coming out of the punk scene was amazing. But when, when they did catch on, like our, our kind of dancing in, in the early 70s of, you know, the mid 70s of the early punk scene and going up into the late 70s was pogo dancing. And it was really rowdy and it was really crazy. But if somebody fell down, they'd get picked up and no one hurt each other. You know, it was just, it didn't turn into like the football tackle style of the, the later punk scene um, or the mush pits where people actually got hurt. And that was actually when all the women, at least in Los Angeles, started going, I'm out of here and went over to like, you know, more roots or rockabilly or surfy kind of music oh. because it was dangerous to go to punk shows for women, you know, because it was just like, it was really like, you know, like a soccer game or a football game or like a wrestling match all combined into one. In the early days, I mean, that's how bands like the Go-Go's came out of it or like the Runaways. Joan Jett was hugely in the punk scene. She produced the Germs first album. Um, there was lots of bands like the Zippers with women in it, the Alley Cats with Diane Chai in it. There was my band, The Screaming Sirens, which started a little later, but it was influenced by everything that I had learned in the early punk scene. There was, there was so many women in the early punk scene. There was a band called Castration Squad. There was The Bags with Alice Bag on vocal yeah. and Patricia Morrison on bass. You know, there was lots of women in the early scene. It's a, uh, this is Mark here. I hadn't even heard of the bags until I read that oral history that uh, John Doe compiled. And it was very hard to find their music. I found it kind of on YouTube. I found Alice Bags more contemporary stuff. Was there not, uh, was there a sort of misogyny among the recording industry at the time to not record? No, there wasn't. There wasn't. There wasn't even really a recording industry. Like the Go-Go's had to go to, uh, to England to get signed to Stiff Records, you know, like they sold everything went. And then the only people in LA that were putting records out, there was like Danger House Records, which was David Braun and KK from the Screamers and um, Rand McNally from the Randoms. And they were running out of a living room. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> um, so like 
it wasn't that nobody wanted to record it. It's just that money was really hard to find. I mean, that kind of stuff was so expensive. You couldn't just make a voice memo in those days, as you know, you know right. what I mean? And um, so it wasn't, it wasn't that the bags were left out, you know, when, when Slash started putting out records, that was a lot later, but the bags were kind of a little bit earlier than that. And then, um, you know, there was just all sorts of circumstances. It wasn't like an anti-woman thing. It was an anti-cash thing. Okay. Um, if you don't mind me asking, I was curious about, I've been reading a lot of interviews with you and then reading your book. And I was curious just about the evolution of your interest in dance and choreography and all of that and how that started. Because I saw a note that um, you were a dancer for the Go-Go's during the first West Coast tour. How did that start? I know you're very close with them, but how does that go from being at a show to, oh, okay, so now part of this big moving operation of a, of a tour? Um, I'd always wanted to be a dancer, but when I was very small, I was, um, I, I begged my mom to take me to a ballet studio in a tiny little town. And the girl looked at my feet and said, you, you know, she's got flat feet. She'll never be a dancer right in front of me. So I went home and cried uh, my eyes out. But anytime I was at clubs, I was go-go dancing um, to a band that was playing. And like, even in the early days of the Go-Go's, they, I mean, that's why they're called the Go-Go's. They were based on 60s music, you know? Right. And, so, and we used to all listen to oldies on like XPRS and Huggy Boy and, uh, you know, and like anybody that had oldies, we'd go to record swap meets and get, we'd have dance parties in houses on porches and stuff like that. So by the time the Go-Go's were a touring act, which was, you know, after the eighties, the you know, I was living with Belinda when their, when their record went to number one, you know, we, we were still living together at this little dump in Hollywood that we called the Spaceland. <laughs> um, anyway, um, so by the time that they'd already been touring for ages, and so they were playing, they were playing a West Coast reunion tour. This was like in the in the nineties, and oh, okay. they said, "Why don't you put together? Um, we want to have go-go dancers on platforms, you know." And so I was like, "Cool." So I, I got a couple of other girls, my friends Marcy and Kina, and who were both like belly dancers, and you know, like I was, and um, we you know, we all would do, like I said, we would all be doing dance parties at houses. So we, we watched like some footage of like the Tammy show or Hullabaloo yeah. or stuff like that, just to right. really make sure we were getting like the movements great. And then we all like, we're doing input into like what, you know, what the dancers should be like. Some of them we acted out like, like, um, you know, we would actually act out like driving, um, for skid marks on my heart or you know and, and other ones we would do stuff where we would we would have completely in sync like i get style choreography where it would be like five six seven eight dive down pony for you know 24 counts like and then like turn left turn right right hand up and we all dressed like we dressed in black velvet crop tops black velvet fishnets i mean black velvet hot pants with fishnets like real black like knee-high go-go boots and we all had like dyed black we're very dark hair so we all got these big like fond girl fake ponytails that went, went down <laughs> to our butts oh, cool. and we just looked like a go-go army and it was <laughs> people lost their minds when they saw it <laughs> i bet 
It was really fun. Well, um, you've done so many things in your life, Pleasant. I mean, you've been in a punk band, The Screaming Sirens, which you mentioned. Um, you're a professional belly dancer and a burlesque artist. You're yeah. the honorary princess of Hollywood. You do tarot readings and you've written several books and screenplays. I mean, what's your secret to um, not only sticking with so many projects, but excelling in so many areas? Well, I mean, I've when I was when I was a lot younger, um, people used to tell me like like adults would say you have to focus on one thing. And yes, I kind of didn't agree with that because I was good at a lot of things, but and I also knew my limitations and some things I wasn't like incredible. Like I knew I wasn't going to be like an opera singer or like you know like someone that like Aretha Franklin or, or any kind of superstar that you would think of for singing or for dancing. I already, I, you know, at that point I, I was like, okay, well, you know, I'm, I'm in my twenties or something. I'm never really going to be a dancer. My dance career literally of all the, the belly dance and all, all of that stuff started when I was around 30, which is insane for a dancer. But I just, I liked it. I could draw. I used to think I was gonna be an artist, um, like a visual artist. Mm -hmm. And so I couldn't figure out one thing to, to concentrate on. And then I, like, and then I thought, why do, why do you need to concentrate on one thing? Why can't you just do a lot of things? Cause I, I was interested in a lot of things. So that's what I did. And, and when, I, when my mother would yell at me for going out at night, <laughs> like every night, I used to say facetiously, mom, I'm doing research, but then I started writing for rock and roll magazines, you know, and then I started like having a band and then it's that, you know, it was just all organic. Like some people can't, some people don't see the track of my life. Like, like, how do you do like a, a 360 and just like go to Egypt and learn how to belly dance, you know, but I, I just did it. it. Everything seems normal to me, even though it looks odd to other people. <laughs> Um, I have a new book coming out too, just so you guys know. It's called Rock and Roll Witch, and it's like 255 pages of paranormal stories that feature people like, it's me, but also with people like the Go-Go's, the Gun Club, the Cramps, the Rolling Stones, the, um, you know, I mean, go, going on and on and on. It's crazy. Wow, so, that's a great premise. Yeah, it's a memoir, and it's um, the subtitle is a memoir of sex, magic, drugs, and rock and roll. <laughs> <laughs> I'm already your first customer. <laughs> What's your story? Can you tell? Um, can you tell us one of the stories? Like, it sounds like something we'll both read. But what is? Can you kind of give us uh, or give the audience like a preview of one of your favorite stories from it? Yeah, sure. Okay, so um, one of the one of the stories. This is probably like the shortest one to explain on a podcast. Um, at, at the house Disgraceland that Belinda from the Go-Go's and I shared, um, I was always like, we were, we were so into Hollywood history and old starlets and like, you know, the ghosts of old Hollywood. And in those days, a lot of the amazing buildings were still there that have now been torn down, you know, like the giant, great, beautiful mansions and just, you know, it looked like Day of the Locust in Hollywood in the 70s, you know, some oh, of wow. it had been unchanged since like the 20s and the 30s. And it was, and, and it was deserted, you know, Hollywood was not, there was no kind of gentrification or urban renewal yet. So that really inspired us. And we were at that time not dressing like, you know, like punk girls, but dressing like 
1940s trumpets, like with this sort of rock and roll twist, you know what I mean? Like we'd go to studio sales and get these magnificent gowns and wear them all over the place. So um, I always had my Ouija board. I've been doing it since I was 12. And we decided one day to try to contact some old starlets on it. And um, like I said, we were living in a punk house called Disgrace End. And so we're like, is anybody there? Is anybody there? And then it went to yes. And then the Ouija board started whizzing around and it spelled out house dirty. <laughs> and so we took that. I mean, there was like petticoats and spike heel shoes and fishnets laying around all over the place, you know? And so we took that as a sign that there really was spirits there. And, um, I, and like Belinda said, like, that's kind of rude. And I, I did like a major <laughs> expletive that starts with an F. And then the Ouija board spelled out shut up sluts oh, wow. and then we, we were just like whoa <laughs> and we, we just like okay we just put the Ouija board away and didn't touch it for a really long time <laughs> that's crazy so, no that's i know like a really I mean, great book <laughs> <laughs> yeah the book is all stuff like that but obviously with a lot better vocabulary. I mean, you know, they're, they're still swearing in the book, but the, the stories have much more detail than, than what I just told you. I grew up uh, around uh, dance in Houston, Texas, but when you, I see this stuff about like how niche punk was before streaming, I can only imagine how niche and hard it was to find music moves as an, I guess, an American um, to get into belly dancing. How? What, what was your journey into creating, as you describe in your book, this just incredible repertoire and knowledge of not just performers, but other pieces of music, but also the choreography itself. How did you get into that world with the depth that you have been able to achieve to then be able to go back where the dance originated and be a legitimate performer within this very complicated and very traditional dance space? Okay, well, this happened directly from rock and roll also. Um, my father had written for National Geographic all through my childhood, and there was always issues, you know, that he had stories in. And when I was about four, I had this shoebox that I kept. This would be like having a Pinterest now, but, you know, uh -huh. I was right. four in the early 60s. So I would cut pictures out of old magazines with my little hummingbird plastic scissors and put them in the box if I liked it. And one of the things was a picture of a belly dancer from Istanbul that was in one of the issues that he had a, a piece in. So I thought it was the most glamorous thing. And I even had it in my wallet, like when I was like in my, in my like up to like my late twenties, I'm not kidding. Cause it was, yeah. it was such a, it, like the, the image spoke to me. So anyway, I was, at a, I was at a rock and roll club in Hollywood called Club Lingerie and this girl came up to me in the bathroom. Like, I, as I said, I was go-go dancing to the band. I wasn't with the band, but I was just like dancing in the audience. And this girl came up to me and said, are you a belly announcer? And I said, no, why? And she said, because you move like one. And I was like, oh, thank you. And then all of a sudden it struck me and I said, are you a belly announcer? And she said, yes. And I was like, I want to see you. So we exchanged our landline phone numbers mm -hmm. and I went to see her. And then when I saw her, I started bugging her afterwards. I was like, you have to, you have to teach this to me. And so I went to my band's rehearsal space and I cleared the amps and chords all the way over to the side. And then I called up every girl I could think of and said, we're going to start having belly dance lessons at, my, oh, wow. at the Sirens rehearsal space on Saturdays. So that, 
that went on for a couple of months and eventually every person dropped out except for me because <laughs> <laughs> um, I was really into it. And then she took me to a couple of Arab clubs in LA and there was lots of them, but you wouldn't know unless you read the Arabic newspapers and you know, most white people didn't read Arabic and didn't look at those papers. So I started finding out where they were. I started going to them. The music was amazing to me because I always loved, you know, complicated classical music and show tunes and stuff like just like I loved all kind of music when I was little. So um, if I liked the song, I would ask a waiter or like this old grandma near me or something, you know, I'd, I'd ask around until I found someone who, who spoke English and I'd say, what is the name of this song? And they'd say like, Ganal Hawa, which means she walks in beauty. And I'd say, who did it? And they'd say, Um Kulthum or Abdel Halim Hafez. And I would, I would ask them to write it down or I would write it down phonetically. And there was this little Arab market on Hollywood Boulevard near, um, just a little bit east of Western. And I went in there one day and they had cassettes. And so I had no idea what was on the cassettes were, but I said the names and they gave me like cassettes and they were, they were more, they were like much less expensive than American music cassettes, you know, cause I think most of them were also bootlegged from live concerts and stuff. Cause some of them had like Xerox covers, not real covers. Yeah. Uh, but I would listen to them and then it, there'd be like a song that I liked. And then um, and then it got to the point where I could identify it when I was at Arab clubs, which always had live music in those days, there was live bands. And so then I was still dancing. I was cleaning this other like professional dancer's house for her to give me private lessons because I didn't have any money and I hated cleaning house, but that's how into this I was. And so then they started having like belly dance showcases at places and um, I made a costume out of all this sequin fabric that I found in the garbage, like in my neighborhood and like took home and washed in my bathtub. And I just kind of made a costume out of it. And I started <laughs> dancing at the, I know total punk rock all the way, right? Yeah. So I, I, and then I told the band what song I wanted. And a lot of dancers weren't doing that, even the professional ones, because they didn't know. And, but, and then I kind of, kept doing that. I kept taking lessons and I quit my job at the Hollywood Reporter because somebody gave me a ticket to Greece. You could give people tickets. You could just give a ticket to people or sell it in those days, you know? And I, I quit the job and I just told my family, I'm going to Egypt for like a couple of months. And I did. And when I look back on it, I can't believe I did that. I had like $250 in cash in my pocket. I was staying at a crappy hotel in Tahrir Square. And then I just said to cab drivers, like the Arabic words for belly dance, which is rakt sharki, which means dance of the East and take me to clubs, take me to people to get oh. lessons from, take me to um, places that had costumes and the economy was so much different there than here. I actually kind of had a lot of money. I right. mean, a lot, but enough to buy a costume that was like handmade and beaded and stuff. And then when I came back, I was still taking lessons, but I started working like someone, I danced for someone's birthday party and there was like Arabic people there. And then I got hired for another party and then I was dancing at clubs. And then my first teacher hated me because she's like, how come they hired <laughs> you and not me, you know? And, and I think it was, oops, sorry, I'm getting a phone call. Oh. I'm gonna hang it up, sorry. I think it might be that ghost that called you a slut. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, so um, 
it that's how it happened and then it just it just it just kept rolling on from there it was crazy I applied everything that I knew from rock and roll like after a point at that if I have a video out it'll be like putting a single out and I was just thinking about that when um one of the owners of a club came into the dressing room and said, why you know have a video? And I said, well, I want to do it, but I don't have money. And he said, I will help you. And he lent me the money for the first video. So I got friends of mine to shoot it, who, you know, who were good at, at you know, they were doing like indie films and just trying to be filmmakers and stuff. And so it came out on a VHS tape and then I brought it to festivals. Like there was a belly dance festival here in LA that had been running for like over 20 years. It was a big festival. And I had the tapes reproduced and I didn't even know anything about, you know, sending them or posted rates or anything, but I brought both tapes I had made. And one was a sword, belly dancing with sword instruction and one was belly dance basics. And then I sat in the parking lot crying, thinking like, who am I kidding? Like, I'm not gonna be able to sell these, am I crazy? And so, but then I went to all the vendors that I had been buying like finger symbols or accessories or whatever from. And I was like, I have these, you know, like, do you think that you might sell them? And they bought them. And by the time the festival was over, I was out of out of them. So uh, I had money well. to get more made because no one had done a sword video. I had like looked at that and I was like, wow, I can do this really good. I can probably teach it. So I just sort of muddled my way through it. But now <laughs> even still it sells, obviously not on VHS, but I mean, so I wound up making like, 18 instructional DVDs on my own. And then I was in a lot of other people's instructional DVDs and compilation DVDs. And I really just looked at it like the, um, you know, like the, like the record business and the touring thing went like that too. Like if I had to go anywhere out of state or farther in California, I would look and see if there was a club I could perform at or if someone wanted me to teach a class and everyone always said yes. So it started looking like I was touring, even though I wasn't technically touring, but then people that were putting on festivals in other states started contacting me and then they pay for all your flights and accommodation and teaching and stuff like this. So that's how it started. And then it wound up being international. And I, I still don't believe any of that rolled like that, but I really think kind of it was meant to be meets using all the savvy I knew from like the music industry from being so, so involved in it for so many years. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like your many professions all tie in with music. Uh, you know, so even if it's a, a book, it's about music, or if mm -hmm. it's belly dancing, it comes from that. Um, but we're going to wrap this up. And Wait, I have to tell you one more thing before you oh, wrap it up, yeah. just so because you will, you guys will get a kick out of this. What is the best music to play a finger symbols? Um, like in a three four melody surf music you can <laughs> you can play it to any venture song walk don't run is great for surfing i mean for playing finger symbols you can do all of that and also somebody asked me to perform to wipe out at a wedding um two years ago on <laughs> wow. the so, i gotta hear that that's great I yes and i have one more thing to tell you i met yeah. dick, i met dick dale at an awards ceremony once he came up behind me and said, has anybody ever told you you look like a belly dancer? And I was like, that's funny, because I am. And he went, really? And I was like, yeah. 
And he says, I'm Lebanese. And I said, I know, Mr. Lou is an Arabic song. And he's like, I know, like that. <laughs> and we had this big, long conversation and people were coming up to me going, you introduced me to Dick Dale. And I was like, I don't know him. And they're like, we're just talking to him for like 45 minutes. <laughs> oh man, that's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, I want everyone to know that uh, you can be seen in the Venture Stars on Guitars documentary, as well as the new documentary on the Go-Go's. And uh, Pleasant has a podcast of her own, The Devil's Music, which I highly recommend. I've been burning through episodes. They're so, uh, so much fun and so uh, educational. And of course, your new book coming up, Rock and Roll Witch. So please uh, let everyone know where they can find you online and social media. You can find me on Twitter as Pleasant Gaiman, P-L-E-A-S-A-N-T. G-E-H-M-A-N-1, because I wanted to have it 11, but there was too many characters. <laughs> um, and then I'm on Facebook as Princess of Hollywood, all one word, all lowercase. I'm on Facebook as Pleasant Gaiman. And um, also I have, a, um, I have a couple of other profiles on Instagram too. I have one called Ramones Ducks, which is this crazy, also music-based um, duck uh, duck feeding and training project that's a lot of fun and there's the and i have also an account called bell book and candle b-e-l-l-e underscore book underscore and underscore candle underscore that's a long one but that's my occult burlesque show oh i think i follow you on that one i do follow you but i think it's one of your more uh, mainstream accounts, I guess. Yeah, that, that Bell Book and Candle is a little more um, tailored to a certain um, audience and it's kind of risque, but yeah, that, but all of them are fun. The Ramones Ducks is really fun. Sweet. All right. Well, thank you, Pleasant. So great to catch up with you. Thank you, you guys. Thank you so much. As always, before I close the show, I'm going to share a paragraph from one of the Rock and Roll Nightmares books. This is an excerpt from Gory Days, the 1980s fiction edition. The story is Pour Some Sacrificial Blood on Me, and it is by B. Castro. He moved to the stereo and turned the volume up loud. Def Leppard's Pour Some Sugar on Me began to play. He then moved toward the bed, pulling off the comforter. The mattress was covered in plastic. He slipped his hand beneath the plastic-covered pillow and pulled out a machete. I have to sacrifice someone with talent, and you have lots of it, he said. The residual soul energy from my band is wearing off. You came right on time. Come closer so you can pour your sacrificial blood on me. The gravity of his eyes made her feel lightheaded. He was trying to bring her closer to him energetically. Nima felt confused, scared, and excited at the same time. To hear a musician she admired telling her she was so talented he wanted to steal it, kind of flattering. But no, he couldn't have her blood or her talent. She managed to break her gaze from his. Fuck you, man. I'm no sacrificial lamb. Nima managed to grab the letter opener from her back pocket. It was like a toothpick compared to his weapon. He was also twice her size. She dashed to the floor and jiggled the lock. Fuck, the suites had automatic locks that could only be accessed with a key card. 
you don't have a choice in the matter, his voice boomed, and she had no choice but to look at him. The power of it hit her with a sudden bolt of electricity. She was looking into his eyes as he began to approach her. This concludes another episode of Rock and Roll Nightmares. I'm your host, Stacey Lane Wilson. The theme song, Out for Blood, is composed and sung by Lars with a Z, Cabot, and the band is Fuzzbuster. You can hear the whole track in the horror comedy film Valentine Days, also with a Z. For photos of the guests and show archives, please visit the website rockandrollthings.com. That's rock and roll with an N. You can also join the Rock and Roll Nightmares Facebook group or follow on Instagram at SLW Books. That's SLW underscore books. This is an indie podcast, so your subscriptions and ratings are really important. Thank you for joining me. Until next time. Mm-hmm.